From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado state law requires wolves to be released back into the wild in the next few weeks. But a wolf pack that was already here is mostly gone, shot and killed across the border. The way that Colorado Parks and Wildlife was able to confirm that it was a wolf pack in Colorado is from a genetic analysis. We'll talk about the investigation into what happened and what it says about reintroduction moving forward. Then, the first Black quarterback in pro football was Marlon Briscoe. But his road to that role with the Denver Broncos was bumpy. The Black quarterback story is a story of opportunity. Denied for many, many years, finally grudgingly allowed. So here's a guy that squeezed through the cracks, but was still denied in the long run. We'll speak with the author of Rocket Men, the Black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football and discuss the progress we see today. Are you planning to take advantage of Colorado's supercharged EV discounts? If you're in the market for a new electric car, consider donating your old one to Colorado Public Radio. You get a new car, we get your old car. And the proceeds from your tax-deductible donation mean we all get great programming. Find the title, fill out a simple online form, and schedule a pickup. It's that easy to donate your car at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado is set to release wolves into the wild in the next few weeks. The state is required to do it by the end of the year after voters approved reintroduction in 2020. But before that vote, there was already a pack of wolves in the state in Moffitt County in northwest Colorado. That pack may now be entirely gone. At least four of the wolves were shot and killed just across the Wyoming border. My co-host Ryan Warner picks up the story from here. The killings prompted state and federal investigations. Mike Koshmurl, a reporter with the nonprofit news site Wyofile, got the details of those investigations through a Freedom of Information Act request. He even spoke to a Coloradan who hunted some of these wolves. And thanks so much for being with us, Mike. I'm happy to be here to discuss the story. Thanks, Ryan. So in Colorado, it's illegal to kill wolves, but that is not the case in Wyoming. Why? Yeah, to answer that, we should go back to the 1980s or 90s. Back then, there was a big push for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, federal wildlife managers, to reintroduce wolves. And they did that in 1995 and 1996. They brought 66 wolves into Idaho and Yellowstone National Park. The 66 turned into several thousand within 20, 30 years. Along the way, the states gained control over their wolves, Hmm. the states of Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And so they now have jurisdiction over the species. They're no longer protected by the Endangered Species Act here, and they can hunt wolves. Wyoming manages its wolves in a way so that there are pretty strict rules on hunting in the northwest corner of the state, but everywhere else, including just across the Colorado border on the entire length of our states, there are essentially no rules and wolves can be just shot on sight. Mm. Okay, so I'm imagining that that's Yellowstone, where there are like some protections for wolves in Wyoming, and everywhere else, you can shoot as as you wish. Yeah, that's correct. They are managed as a trophy game species, kind of in and around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is kind of a complex of federal lands that stems out from Yellowstone National Park. 
in that area, Wyoming is required to have 150 wolves and 10 wolf packs. Everywhere else in the state of Wyoming, about 85% of the state of Wyoming, in fact, they are classified as a predator species. And yeah, you can shoot them. You can basically do anything to kill them. You could theoretically kill a litter of puppies in the den. That would be completely in step with Wyoming law. And no uh, license would be needed to do that. No license, no season dates. You could hunt them at night. You could use all sorts of technology to pursue them. There is an open question whether you could shoot them from aircraft over private land. Yeah, trap, you name it. There's just no uh, restriction uh, under Wyoming policy as it is today. And maybe just say a word or two about why that's the case. Wyoming was very resistant to wolf reintroduction. It was done by the federal government. And so Wyoming really fought hard to have this predator zone, as we call it, as part of its wolf management plan. All right. That's a picture of just across the border in Wyoming. And again, in Colorado, illegal to kill wolves. Colorado, a state that is also trying to introduce them. So when and how did the first wolf from the pack we mentioned at the start die? That wolf was drawn in to an electronic call of a man who lives in Northwest Colorado, who I interviewed for my story. This man was hunting black bears, which is just something evidently that he's done for some time. He's a hunting outfitter and a black bear hunter, and he likes to hunt over bait, which is legal in Wyoming and not legal in Colorado. Mm. So he's there. There he is in uh, May 2019 hunting black bears using electronic call, like the sound of a pronghorn in distress. And the critter that gets drawn into this call, at first he thought it was a coyote, which he could have shot legally in Wyoming. Like wolves, there are no restrictions on killing coyotes in Wyoming. And then he sees it a little clear and he realizes it's not a coyote, it's a wolf. This was actually about nine months before Colorado Parks and Wildlife announced that they had DNA evidence of wolf pack in Moffat County. This hunting outfitter knows the rules on wolf hunting in that portion of Wyoming, and he decides to kill the wolf. On the Wyoming side, yeah. On the Wyoming side, correct. Mm -hmm. He was about 600 yards north of the state line. Well, that all sounds legal. What, What were the authorities, state and federal, investigating then? So the following spring in 2020, the hunting outfitter who I interviewed, his son, along with the outfitter, they continued to pursue wolves in that region north of the state line. And there were a couple more wolves that were killed. One of them was essentially shot on the state line. The hunters were at a gate on a small road that separates the states when they saw the wolf. And so this is a bit of speculation. I would take a gander that word spread of how close to the state line some of these wolves were being killed. And Colorado Parks and Wildlife uh, Warden, I believe, started looking into it and didn't 
basically wasn't having success getting information from the state of Wyoming about mm. the wolf harvests mm -hmm. in the southern corner, southwest corner of the state. And then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service got involved and opened up an investigation. Did the wolves have some sort of trackers on them that would have told you where they died? No, no. Okay. Um, this was not a pack that like had GPS collars. Okay. Uh, the way that Colorado Parks and Wildlife was able to confirm that it was a wolf pack in Colorado is from a genetic analysis of scat. And the way that investigators were able to piece it all together was through interviews and through photos that the hunters posted on Facebook. And then they actually went back to the sites and then like lined up like, well, here's where this tree is. And Whoa. here's where the hunter said they shot from. And they kind of checked everything off, made sure that the uh, situation on the ground like lined up with the hunter's accounts. And they determined that, you know, no laws were violated pretty early on in 2020. In fact, told the hunters, you know, you guys are in the clear. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided to not formally close the case, however. And I was told by a retired special agent involved in the investigation that the reason they left it open was because they did not want the investigation to get out and they did not want it to influence the wolf reintroduction vote in Colorado, which at the time was just like two or three months away. Hmm. Uh, so they left the investigation technically open, even though there was no active investigation for years after after 2020. How did you come across this? Like, how did you how did you find the outfitters? Well, I first came onto this story two and a half years ago or so. I was doing some reporting out in the field. At the time I worked for the Jackson Hole News and Guide, I was up on a place called Togety Pass. There was a grizzly bear that had been causing issues along roads, drawing crowds on this busy highway. And I ran into U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service special agent who I knew was retiring soon or had just retired. And, and then he... when a journalist knows that a federal official is retiring... <laughs> <laughs> they smell exactly. Meat. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I, I basically is like, hey, what are some cases you worked on that you feel like really deserve publicity that never got it? And he gave me a short list and I followed up on him and submitted a FOIA Freedom of Information Act request for the Wolf Report. And it was still open, but I kept kind of badgering the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about it. And I found out that it had been closed early in 2023. And so I got those documents uh, pretty recently. In the investigative documents, it redacted the identity of the wolf hunters, but it did not redact the name of an outfitting business that was being investigated. So oh. all I did was through that and Google. And pretty quick, I had the guy who was pursuing the wolves on the phone. I have a guess as to the answer to this question, but how did these hunters, these outfitters in Colorado, feel about wolf introduction, essentially, potentially in their own backyard? Yeah, I did ask the man I interviewed about that, and he was forthright and said that he is opposed to wolf reintroduction. Um, uh, I kind of came back at him with a question, well, like, 
you guys clearly enjoy wolf hunting, Hunter, uh, yeah. you, know, they, you know, so is, is that compelling to you? The idea that, you know, there'd be a new species in Colorado that you could pursue. He was very skeptical that in his lifetime, he would have the opportunity to hunt wolves in Colorado. There was basically no element of wolf uh, reintroduction that he was supportive of, which my understanding is that kind of lines up with uh, the rural urban split and how that uh, referendum vote went back in fall 2020. I, I suppose the subtext there is he didn't think that wolves would bounce back fast enough in Colorado, that they would be so plentiful that they could be hunted here. He didn't think that would happen in his lifetime. My sense was that he was more of the mind that he didn't think that Colorado would make wolves available for hunting. Mm, okay. So more a question maybe of policy as well. Correct. Why, yeah. why did you grant these folks anonymity? That was a conversation that I had with my editors, and they ultimately made that decision. The reason was essentially that he was worried about being threatened and harassed and didn't want his name out there. We thought that reason was warranted. This is a very hot button, very politically charged issue. There are a lot of people that care very passionately about wolves. And uh, I think it is very plausible that had his name been in that story, he would have been on the receiving end of a lot of harassment. We also thought that, you know, it would make it a richer story. And by having his perspective, rather than basing it pretty much solely on law enforcement documents. Yeah. It would uh, just be a service to our readers. And then the third reason is because he didn't violate any laws. If this would have been someone who was a convicted criminal, it wouldn't have unfolded the way it did mm -hmm. in our decision making. But he was doing everything by the book, investigators found, which also factored into our decision to grant him anonymity. It just doesn't seem like Colorado and Wyoming <laughs> sync up here. And, I mean, that has all sorts of repercussions potentially for wolf reintroduction here, right? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, certainly there's this extremely stark political divide that has implications for wildlife management. The rules are entirely different on one side of a line that is essentially meaningless to wildlife like wolves. And I think that the controversy around these incidents, and there have been more wolves killed in Wyoming, north of Jackson County, in Wyoming's Carbon County, from the North Park Pack. I think there's just been a lot of blowback. And so I think there's been enough tension over this issue that Wyoming actually stopped communicating to Colorado and the public in general. Like when a wolf now comes north, out of Colorado into Wyoming, the state of Wyoming, citing a state statute, will not even confirm that it has happened. Oh, that that's, wow. Okay, so that makes it even more difficult on Colorado's end. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you guys are about to reintroduce wolves within the next three or four weeks. Right. Uh, and I think that the intention is they will put those wolves far enough south where this is, will be a non-issue. But let's just say some of those wolves do disperse way north. You know, these wolves that are coming from Oregon and a lot of resources are going into getting into the state of Colorado and they're historical wolves, uh, just like this pack in Moffat County was. If one of those animals comes north into the state of Wyoming and is killed, 
the state of Wyoming's position is that nobody, including the state of Colorado, has a right to know about it. Uh, it's that's a pretty eye-opening reality, and that it's completely legal to have done so. Uh, correct. Yeah. Yep. The way yep. that the, the law is structured in Wyoming, that would be legal. Mm-hmm. What else did you learn about these outfitters? Anything you'd like to share with them? Because, again, what was important to you was to humanize, make full characters of these folks in your story. You know, I asked him if he put a special emphasis on going after these wolves because of their historical significance to Colorado. You know, it was the first wolf pack documented in the state since the 1940s. His answer to that was basically that he'd wanted to hunt wolves for some time and he had been contemplating a trip up to like the Yellowstone region. And that kind of like destination wolf hunting trip is expensive. I think he said, quote, like, we don't make a lot of money. And so when they found wolves kind of in their neck of the woods and wanting to hunt wolves, they just they were kind of opportunists and then decided to pursue those wolves. And and they were quite successful. They ended up, you know, between this outfitter and his son, they killed three wolves out of a pack that I think was once documented with six animals in it. Oh, and what what did they do with the wolves they killed? Yeah, I asked that, and they and I was curious, you know, if they had them on display in their home as a discussion topic for folks come over to visit. And he said that they did not. In fact, he pointed out that his wife doesn't allow them to display any animals, even though he's in a hunting outfitter. Like in their common spaces in their home, they they don't have animals, be it an elk or wolf, hmm. on display. He did point out that they skinned and tanned them and held onto their pelts because of the time of year when they killed them. In May, in both 2019 and 20, the the coats were, he used the term slipping, but basically they were like losing their winter coat like a dog would. Mm-hmm. And so they're patchy. My editor, he said, well, where where are they now? And so I called the guy back and, and asked him that. And he said that they were hanging in the corner of a, of a room and I, I pushed him on the room and he said it was, well, it was one of his son's old bedrooms, but they now use it only for storage. So that's where those three wolves uh, pelts remain. Essentially in storage. Yep. Hanging in the corner of one of his son's old bedrooms used for storage is what he told me. Thanks for sharing your reporting. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Mike Kochmerl is a reporter with the nonprofit news site Wyofile. He spoke with my co-host Ryan Warner. Colorado is required to release wolves back in the state by the end of the year. So in the next few weeks, up to 10 wolves will be let go. Others may be released later. The wolves are being relocated from Oregon. Meantime, today, the Colorado Cattlemen's Association and the Gunnison County Stock Growers Association filed a complaint in U.S. District Court to try to to delay wolf reintroduction. The organizations represent ranchers and farmers in Colorado. They're concerned about the impact wolves may have on livestock and rural communities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. 
made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Denver Broncos won big over the Los Angeles Chargers Sunday. It marks a big turnaround for the home team that struggled at the start of the season. And some might argue that Russell Wilson has some extra pressure on him to represent as a black quarterback. Despite a high number of black players in the National Football League, the position of quarterback has largely been dominated by white players. John Eisenberg has written a book that provides an historical perspective. It's called Rocket Men, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. We spoke in September. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Quarterbacks are widely considered the heart of a football team. Definitely a focal point, the leader of the offense, and often the face of the franchise. White players have dominated this role. Why is that? For many years, sort of the thinking that a lot of teams had, and and of course, these are the NFL, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. You're looking at all white owners, all white coaches all white general managers, everyone making all decisions are white. And they had skepticism whether a a black man could be a quarterback in the NFL. The position was complicated. It was glamorous. And I think some of these guys, it was just a racist ideology. That's the only way to put it. There were questions that were persistent. Were they smart enough to run an offense? Were they disciplined enough to practice as hard as they needed to? Could they lead? Could they perform in the clutch? Just just one thing after the other, one question after the other, based on nothing, you know, because none of the black quarterbacks had ever played in the NFL. And so that was a very tough ideology to crack. You know, we're really talking about a story of, of black leadership, you know, in a white institution. And it took decades. I mean, the NFL was formed in 1920. And uh, the first pro quarterback was Marlon Briscoe there in Denver in 1968. So that's almost a half century just to get a guy on the field. And it's taken decades after that just for some of that ideology to wane, to crack, to be disproven. And so it's a long, slow process that I detail in my book. Of course, today we celebrate Marlon Briscoe as a trailblazer, and the Broncos get credit for having him as the first black quarterback in the late 60s, as you mentioned. But his road to that role was actually quite bumpy. Here's some of what he had to say when my co-host Ryan interviewed him back in 2018. When I got drafted out of college in the 14th round by the Broncos, they, of course, drafted me as a defensive back. Uh, That's what they did to black quarterbacks who, if they did make it to the uh, collegiate level playing quarterback, that's what they did. They said that, you know, you're a great athlete, so you can play other positions. What do you think their reasoning was? Well, because they didn't think a black man could think, throw, and lead on that level. I had a stellar career in college as a quarterback. I made All-American, and I negotiated my own contract, and in those negotiations, you know, I told the Bronco Brass that I would play defensive back, but they had to give me a three-day trial at quarterback. They thought I was crazy. How is a 14th-round draft choice when it's only 17 rounds going to dictate, you know, the conditions of a, of a contract? I said, well, you know, that's what I'm going to do. If, if I can't get that three-day trial, I was going to go ahead and teach school. All I wanted was a form to showcase my skills. I never thought 
that I was going to get, you know, a level playing field. But they acquiesced to my so-called demands. Where did you get the, the confidence to ask for those three days? Well, you know, first of all, you know, we're talking about the 60s where Black America had different approach to life and, and self-esteem. We, as African Americans, wanted to be heard, especially 1968. 1968 was one of the most pivotal years of change in the history of this country, if not the world. And so it was seemed like appropriate time <laughs> that somebody stood up that was Denver Broncos player Marlon Briscoe speaking with my co-host Ryan Warner in 2018. Sadly, Briscoe passed away in June of 2022 at the age of 76. John, so what do you find most fascinating about Marlon Briscoe's story? Well, Mar Marlon's an amazing figure in this story for the simple fact that, yes, I mean, he was drafted as a defensive back. All, everything that he said, they didn't let a guy like him play quarterback, even though he had shown in college that he was really good. Even after that trial that he got in training camp, he was playing defensive back for the Broncos as a rookie, sitting on the bench, and they had a number of other white quarterbacks ahead of him, and they all got hurt, is what happened. And during that trial, he'd shown that he had a nice arm, and he was a, he, he was a good quarterback. So they had no choice. The Broncos had no choice. Uh, they thought, well, we're going to do this. We're going to put him in. Lou Saban was the coach, and they just put him on the field, started as a substitute, and he did well enough that he became a starter towards the end. It wasn't a great season for the Broncos. Uh, they had a losing record, I think. But uh, Marlon started five games for them there towards most of them in the second half of the season. And he he was close to spectacular. He ran around. He threw passes. He ran for gains. He led the team. Uh, they didn't win all the games. Like I said, they weren't that good. But uh, the team and they, the defense was bad and all that. But Marlon was uh, very impressive, and uh, anybody that watched football could see this, this guy could certainly play quarterback in, in pro football. He was doing it. And so what happened, you know, I mean, if you fast forward a little bit after the season, uh, a lot of the players on the Broncos thought, well, we found ourselves quarterback going forward. We're, th this is great, but uh, the Broncos immediately pivoted away from him. They had uh, several of the white quarterbacks they'd had on the team were healthy again. They traded for another one. And when they had quarterback meetings, off-season meetings, to sort of go over strategy and the playbook and everything and brought everybody together, they didn't even invite Marlon. Marlon mm. read about it in the newspaper. And he, he, they, they were shutting him out of the quarterback position. They had no intention of going forward with him as a quarterback. That was absolutely clear to him, to anyone. And so he, he asked to be traded. And, uh, you know, he wanted to leave the team. So... In order to have an NFL, a, a pro football career, he had to change teams and change positions. So what happened to him was, was totally in keeping with what happened to black quarterbacks back in that era. He went to the Buffalo Bills as a wide receiver, played well for the Bills, got traded to the Miami Dolphins, and had a couple of great seasons on championship teams. And everybody remembered him as being a member of these great Miami Super Bowl winning teams. But uh, in the long run, what he's best known for is he got onto the field. There were no other black quarterbacks in professional football. Really, his historical legacy is that he got on the field as a quarterback for one year, half a year, and did a great job. But uh, what happened to him shows exactly the fight uh, that lay ahead. And that was, you know, he just got shut out. You weren't going to get a chance. You know, 
It happened once. It was a borderline miracle, but, you know, it was not going to happen again to him. And so his story is a real microcosm of the entire story. Yeah, to your point, he won two Super Bowls with the Miami Dolphins, and he was a receiver on the 1972 Dolphins team that finished with a perfect season. A great football player and had an excellent career. And uh, when uh, they, uh, that, that undefeated team, of course, is famous. And uh, there was a point in the 2009 or 10, they came to the White House and President Obama was going down the line, shaking hands with him. He got to Marlin. He goes, I know you. He said, I know you. You're the trailblazer. You were the trailblazer at quarterback. And, you know, Marlin, I don't know exactly what he said, but I think he was he was pretty honored and flattered uh, that he was recalled that way. And, uh, you know, that that is certainly his legacy, the first modern pro black quarterback. I'm sure he and Obama could relate to being first. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of people are very gracious, you know, the whole it's just an honor to be nominated kind of ideology. But from my understanding, Briscoe never forgot the fact that he lost his starting job in Denver without explanation at all. He thought the hard part was that they would ever let him on the field. Mm-hmm. He didn't think that would happen. And so when they did, what he couldn't figure out was, OK, then they plagued me for better or worse. And I really did well. I just didn't understand that. You know, why? Playing well didn't mean that I could continue to have a chance. The black quarterback story is a story of opportunity. Um, Denied for many, many years, finally grudgingly allowed opportunities Mm. to black quarterbacks. So here's a guy that squeezed through the cracks and got an opportunity, but, you know, it was still denied in the long run. And so he never could figure that out. He had a close friend in Buffalo, James Harris, who was one of the first pro black quarterbacks. I interviewed James. He said he thought Marlon was bitter. Marlon said, no, I'm not bitter. I just don't understand really why it happened. It's a bit of a mystery, but when you really look at the long story, the long history of the black quarterbacks, sort of that sort of denial was very common. So what he, what he experienced was what a lot of other people experienced, which was, you know, your opportunities just taken away. The Broncos also had Teddy Bridgewater, and now we have Russell Wilson. Yes. And doing this book, I came across a historian in Chicago who's done unbelievable research on this team by team, player by player, year by year, going back to 1953. And some teams had done more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Broncos were not at the forefront of that, you know, that even though they had Marlon Briscoe. They were predominantly white quarterbacks. There were some black quarterbacks along the way. You know, the, the door had opened wide and a lot of teams were taking chances, certainly in this century. You know, the situation is not what it was. But certainly the Russell Wilson acquisition, what it shows you as much as anything is the degree to which no longer are NFL teams seeing color at that position. Certainly, if there's a quarterback they want and that quarterback happens to be black, it just doesn't matter. That was not a factor in the Broncos' decision-making to give up as much as they did and to give him all the money they did. So that certainly is a bellwether. It shows you where things stand now. This was a trade. They acquired him in a trade, and there were you would not see teams trading for a black quarterback. And I'm talking just 15 years ago, you wouldn't have seen it. So things are changing dramatically. The manner by which uh, Wilson got to Denver certainly is an indication of that. In researching for this segment, I learned the year of the first Super Bowl, which was 1966, 
there were no black quarterbacks in the AFL or NFL. I also read that the year of 1977, which happens to be the year that Tom Brady was born, there had never been an NFL game where both teams started black quarterbacks. And at the time when Brady was drafted, there had never been two black quarterbacks to face off in an NFL playoff game ever. And that brings us to 2023, the Super Bowl that featured two black quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts. Yes, all those stats you you cite are accurate. And hey, I'll give you another one. It wasn't until 2017, six years ago, that the NFL could say that every team in their league had started a black quarterback in a game. Why? Right? That was not the case until 2017. The last team to do it was the New York Giants, founded in 1925. So almost a century earlier, they'd always started a white quarterback Okay, every game. So finally, that ends uh, in 2017. Every team has started a black quarterback. You can add that to the list of things that you accurately depicted there. Going forward now, I mean, just six years later, the situation has, has really changed. And that was in evidence by the fact that Patrick and uh, Jalen Hurts uh, started the Super Bowl. That was huge. And then just a few months later in the NFL draft, three of the first four players selected were black quarterbacks. Mm. Another moment where you can say, wow, these guys are talented and, and great pro prospects and the teams want them. It's, it's sad that we're talking about it in 2023. Personally, but, you know, it at least shows that finally, you know, getting beyond some of that ideology. In my intro, I said that all eyes are on the Broncos right now, but truth be told, even more eyes are on the CU Buffs team right now, thanks to the arrival of Coach Prime, Deion Sanders. They've had a great start, led by his son, Shadur Sanders, who is, of course, a Black quarterback. What do you think needs to be done to recruit more Black quarterbacks on the college level? Well, Shadur Sanders is a great example. Uh, you know, he certainly brings to the fore Many aspects of the story. He was at an HBCU before he came to Colorado. That's historically and, black college. Uh, and there were, there were a lot of doubts about that level of football. So uh, that, that's one thing that had to be overcome. And he's obviously a great football player. He's done a terrific job. He's got a great future. And he's come of age at a time when the opportunities are there. Certainly, black quarterbacks actually had chances in college football before the pros. It became more prevalent for uh, black quarterbacks to play in the 1980s, 1990s, there were far more in college football than the pros. And, uh, you know, not so many in the South, the Southwest, different parts of the country, but of course, even that has changed long ago. It's fascinating to watch him. And, and uh, it again, what, what, what did I say earlier? This is a story of opportunity and all he is getting is opportunity, finally. And look what he's doing with it. it with the, the talent was never the question. It was the opportunity to play at this level, and uh, he is proving himself to be, uh, you know, more than up to it and uh, certainly changing uh, even more minds as we go, almost on a weekly basis. Today, we're talking about the historical perspective of the dearth of black quarterbacks over the years in professional football. But there's also been a huge discussion about the need for more black coaches in the NFL do you consider these two issues related? I do. And here's how it comes about in my mind. If you go through the, the coaching ranks, the, the, the lack of black coaches is a huge problem right now in the NFL, uh, head coaches, and not enough black coordinators, you know, major assistant coaches, position coaches coming through the ranks. It's improving, but 
yes, you need more of that. The way the situations are related is this, where there is, in this day and age today, if you're Russell Wilson or if you're Patrick Mahomes, you're coming out of college, you're a star, Lamar Jackson, uh, you're going to get drafted. You're going to get an opportunity. Those high draft picks, they're going to play. That's great. But what we have not seen much of is the journeyman, you know, the the black backup quarterback, mm-hmm. a guy that maybe isn't a star. He's just, for lack, to use a sports term, just a guy. All right. And he maybe can play 10 years, mostly as a backup. Just haven't seen many black players in that role. It seems that's sort of the last vestige of that old reflex. Teams seem to trust white players more in that role. Uh, it's one that requires them that you know, they're not going to play. You have to be disciplined. You have to be ready. And, you know, I'm not saying that uh, they, they're, they're, the teams just automatically think the black players can't do that, but there seems to be some sort of holding back. It's improving. Teddy Bridgewater, who you mentioned earlier, would be an example of that. Uh, a guy, now he did start in Denver and he's, he's, he's bounced around the league a little bit and he always seems that teams seem to want him and maybe he will be that role. And the reason I mention it at all is that uh, many of the coaches come through the offensive side of football. Many, many of them are quarterbacks. So, you know, some of them weren't good enough to play in the pros, but you, you'll see a quarterback become coach and that is a real pipeline. And so the lack of this black backup quarterback to me, Doug Williams, who is the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl, mentioned this specifically to me in our interview. He said, the more black backup quarterbacks you see, you're going to see more coaches come out of that ranks. And that could address this, this coaching dearth. You know, more Teddy Bridgewaters, guys that, that are hanging around, learn the game, because that's how you really learn pro football, is that you hang around 10, 12 years, you're in meetings, you're carrying a clipboard, you're watching, and you just move naturally into coaching. So I think the more black quarterbacks you see in, in the NFL, maybe not necessarily star, stars, just the larger population, you're going to see more coach. And I think that has the potential to change that situation. Why do you think some of the black quarterbacks who have been successful in the NFL have trouble getting even backup jobs once they're past their prime? They don't seem to last long on the downside of their career. That's another issue that, that I, I list in my book, and that is second chances. Second chances, yes, once, even if you've been good and, and you move on, that's it. It's that backup role that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if your days as a star are over and you're a black quarterback, it's not always the easiest situation for you. One can only hope that teams come to understand that these guys that have been playing in the league eight, 10 years or whatever, they certainly can handle that role, should handle that role, and they would be great in that role. Hey, when Doug Williams won the Super Bowl for the Washington, it was then the Redskins, now the Commanders, he was a backup for half of that season. He was a backup near the end of that season. He just earned a starting job as the playoffs began. What it all says is if the superstars, no problem, but you'll know things are really changing when you see the overall population, the sort of journeyman quarterbacks, as many blacks as whites, and that is not the case at this point. This is a case where you need opportunity. One thing I cited in my book, there was, uh, there was an academic study that came out about 10 years ago, and it studied just the language in which going into the draft, using draft prospects, the language that was used to describe black quarterbacks and white quarterbacks. And it was a fundamental difference. This study found that the white quarterbacks, it was always, well, they're, you know, they're smart, they're students of the game, you know. They, they understand grasping this and that. And the black quarterback was generally 
more so, oh, he's a great athlete and uh, amazing athletic potential. Not talking about his mind as much as his body. I, I think it's an outgrowth of that. You know, the mind is what needs to be emphasized. Uh, a guy like Patrick Mahomes, everybody sees this unbelievable arm. Well, they have no understanding of the fact or don't see the fact that he's incredibly quick at commanding, a, you know, a playbook, changing plays at the line of scrimmage, incredibly sharp and fast. I, I think a lot of people in the Colin Kaepernick story have. You know, I interviewed uh, Kaepernick's uh, offensive coordinator's first years in San Francisco, and he said that guy, uh, what I remember most about him was he came out of college as a 4-0 student, and it didn't matter what I put in front of him. He just he just grabbed it in a heartbeat and complicated offensive philosophy. He could change plays at the line of scrimmage. Incredibly smart guy. And, you know, you just don't hear enough about that. And uh, when you start hearing that kind of stuff, that's when you'll really know that it's changed, that people will go, you know, comment on uh, the, the intelligence uh, as much as their athletic ability. Can you give us the Cliff Notes version of the five other quarterbacks you mentioned in your book as revolutionizing the game? I titled this book Rocket Men as a compliment. Certainly, you look at the black quarterbacks playing football today. They've changed that position. The, the old stereotype of of a white drop-back quarterback, which the NFL, all NFL teams wanted really as recently as 2010. I mean, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, just said, you know, those those were the guys that were winning Super Bowls. All those teams wanted them. And the next example of a player like that is what they wanted. But it finally changed, I think, in 2011, 2012, coming into the league, Cam Newton, Colin Kaepernick, uh, Russell Wilson, Robert Griffin III, four mm-hmm. guys who, who were unreal talents. And, and they, they had everything. They were smart. They were big. They were fast. They could throw just everything. And so the NFL at that point finally decided we, we're going to shed that stereotype. We're going to let these guys play how they play. Their team said, you know, we're going to take advantage of what they do. That They can run. We're not going to make them stand in the pocket. And all those guys just came in and just turned the league upside down. Kaepernick was in the Super Bowl as a second-year player. Russell Wilson was in the, won a Super Bowl as a second-year player, was back in another one as a third-year player. Those guys were just phenomenal. That began the real change of the quarterback position in the NFL. You fast forward to today, and every game you see, the quarterback is on the move. He's running around. You know, He's not stationary, and there's a lot of creativity and a lot of guesswork from defenses of what's going to happen back there. It's a far cry from what it was. And so those guys really revolutionized, I think, the sport and uh, paved the way for the guys that are that are playing now. I titled it Rocket Men because uh, if you watch them play, there's no way you can say they're anything other than Rocket Men. <laughs> but I also wanted to be serve as a compliment to the people who didn't get the chance along the way because all they lacked was opportunity. And I'm talking about Marlon Briscoe going forward. Uh, you know, there were a, a, a lot of guys that uh, probably could have done what these those other guys did, or they didn't get the chance. But uh, let's give them their credit because uh, they were they were stars in their own right. They just didn't get the chance. As we speak, there is some notable progress in the NFL. For example, 14 black quarterbacks started in week one this year, breaking the record of 11 set last season. It's the third time in four years that a new high mark has been set in that category. And some of those starters include who we've already mentioned, but also Justin Fields, Jordan Love, Bryce Young, 
C.J. Stroud and Anthony Richardson, just to name a few. And the 2023 NFL Draft marked the first time in league history Black men were selected as the top three quarterbacks taken in the draft. So lots of movement in this area. There is real movement in this area, and it's uh, it's great to see, and it's long overdue. And I would say this. Uh, these guys, they're, they're really good players. They're, some of them are young. Some of them are old. Uh, it, it is finally happening. And the fact that the league put out a press release on it tells you something. Uh, <laughs> you know. So acknowledging it, acknowledging the significance, acknowledging the milestone. Yeah, that's, that's really something. That's good. I would say it, it's definitely great. It's also an indication of what could have been. When you, you go back and look at guys in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s that didn't get that chance to play, real talented guys, the guys that are playing today stand on their shoulders. There's no question. And I, I think it's really important to shine a light on the fact that this is something that happened. Black men could not play quarterback in the NFL for a long time. And it was a classic case of denial by stereotype. And it went on and on and on. And it, it took a long time to be dispelled. Uh, you know, it makes you appreciate what's, what's going on now, makes you appreciate it more and certainly uh, feel like, you know, let's make sure that it doesn't happen again. Really fascinating information. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. That was award-winning journalist and author John Eisenberg, author of Rocket Men, The Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football. We spoke in September about the perils and the progress of black quarterbacks in pro football from an historical context up to present day. In Strasbourg, the next generation of Mexican cowboys are carrying on the legacy of Charreria, Mexico's national equestrian sport. Denverite's Isaac Vargas tells us about one young Charro. Fitted in a blue button-down shirt and a cream-colored sombrero, 17-year-old Carlos Miranda guides his horse up to a gate that will soon swing wide open. Carlos Miranda! Carlos Miranda! Friends and family look on from the beds of their trucks on a recent sunny Saturday afternoon. Miranda kicks his horse into a heavy gallop, chasing an anxious brown steer. His wide-brimmed hat now perpendicular with the dirt, Miranda leans over the side of his horse and grabs the steer's tail, spinning the animal and hoping it will topple into the ground. Well, we call ourselves charros. Okay. That's what we are. Cowboys are like what white people do. Like uh, they wear, they wear their the straw has their their felts. We wear a big sombrero. It's a uh, like culture from Mexico. Is what we we've done. What we grew up with. Charros have a deep history in America's cowboy culture, credited with teaching those who settled in the U.S. West about ranching alongside other indigenous horsemen in the region. You go through nerves, you go through happiness, you go like on your animal, right? You learn to love the animal. Coliaderos have caught the attention of animal rights groups in the past who oppose the practice because it can cause serious injuries to horses and cattle. Riders get three opportunities to score points, vying for 70% of the winning pot. The remaining 30% goes to the event's organizer. Alfonso Bonilla Ortiz. Los caballos, el ganado. Ortiz said it's nice for young riders to be among horses, cattle, and others within the Charro community. For riders like Miranda, the sport has proved an escape 
for a young boy who struggled to find his place in school. After dropping out of Lincoln Park's Colorado High School charter, Miranda now helps run a concrete company with his father. His dreams are set in the life of a Mexican cowboy. Isaac Vargas, Denverite. See some amazing action photos of the Charros at denverite.com. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.